word why. What a curious word. The kind of word that can make us cringe, feel defensive, or even distant. But you know, sometimes why is the key. The key that can unlock so much to our lives. Join me as we explore the why with fascinating contributors to the world. Those that entertain us, inform us, teach us about life, and if we're lucky, inspire the next in all of us. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and welcome to Headroom, a production of Rainlight and co-produced by Old Soul. Let's go. Bobby Bones. Yeah, that's a weird name. You know, still, it's still weird. Is it still weird? I wanted to ask you because I wanted to ask you how much of uh, Bobby Estelle is, is still in Bobby Bones. Well, I mean, that's the weird part is that somebody who's been known for authenticity and that's their brand as being as real as possible to have a fake name. It's always been just a juxtaposition that doesn't quite feel right. You know, I never chose the name. I mean, I guess I had multiple choice. Wasn't it Bobby Z or? It was, I, there were just a few. I was a kid. I was 17 years old. Yeah. And the guy was like, all right, you got a few options. Bobby Z, Bobby Bones. And I just remember thinking even then, man, both of those names suck. And I also always thought that I would change it at some point. You did? Yeah, because again, I was in Hot Springs, Arkansas, which I was going to college then. I was driving an hour to school. I was living at school, driving an hour to work, and I was like, "I'm this is my my base. I'm going to jump off this and then change my name, and it's going to be awesome." But everywhere I went, it was connected to the, that last place because I went from Hot Springs to Little Rock, and we had some shared listening. So my station guy was like, "Ah, you got to keep it. There's too many people to know you." And then I started from Little Rock, voice tracking nights and other markets, and so the executives were like, "You just need to be." I just couldn't shake it, and so it is who I am at this point, but it's still weird. It's interesting. Obviously, a listener couldn't see this because we're sitting inside your studio, which is incredible, by the way. Thank you. This is just, I think, a dream for anybody who's creative in storytelling. But there's a physical physical shift in you when you're even talking about it, even after all these years. Yeah, squirmy even. (laughs) Yeah, squirming. Yeah. It's just not the... It's almost... A different person, but you play by all the same rules that you do in your real life, too. I am quite quiet, shy, even extremely reserved whenever I'm not Bobby Bones. Now, where I get into trouble is people will recognize me. And if I don't know I'm being recognized, I got nothing to say. I'm just part of whatever's happening. I'm part of it. I'm quiet. I got my head down. I don't want to bother folks. But where I get into trouble sometimes, people will go, well, he just wasn't very nice. And I'm like, I didn't know you were there. And when I have a microphone in front of me, it's not the same dude. Like, I'm me when a microphone's in front of me, but it's definitely turned up. And it is turned up. Or you know what I think it is? It's the first time I ever thought about this. I think it's just turned down when I'm not on. Because growing up, I was the kid who wanted attention, who was always wanting to perform. So I think... For the first time, I'm thinking, I'm not turned up. I think I'm just turned down whenever I'm not on. Because it takes a lot of energy to do this. And not just the radio show. It takes For me, it takes a lot of energy to do. Because I do a lot of things. Some of them well, some of them not. But I'm always trying to do multiple things. And that that's, that's an energy sucker. And so maybe that's where it goes. And I'm just quiet and I got nothing to say if I'm not being told to say something. 
have you always been a busybody, like always wanting to do things, have a lot on your plate, even as a kid? I don't want to have a lot on my plate now. I wish I was just good at something. And I don't say that in a way of, hey, please tell me I'm good at something. But I don't really have a skill that you can look and go immediately. That's what that guy's known for. Like, what am I known for? Go ahead. Well, it's quite well, I, I know you're from obviously American Idol, Dancing with the Stars, your radio show. Right. Your but, but like, but what's the skill? Yeah. That's then that's the honest answer is, and that's why people are confused by my success sometimes too. Myself included, but I know a lot of it's tenacity, honestly. But people are like, I don't get it. Like he's funny, but he's not like Mulaney or, you know, he's okay looking. But it's not like he's Chris Hemsworth. I'm not really the best in, in any area. However, I'm able to make it work because I think how I grew up, I had to be a chameleon in a lot of ways. And I think I'm able to do that. And I've developed a lot of these odd skills. Like I think I have a Swiss Army knife that the blazers aren't that sharp. But I can – I got blazers for everything. Will you know when you've arrived or will you be – No, never. Researching? No, my wife is like, you know, like you're good. You're not the underdog anymore. And I feel like I am always the underdog just because that's burnt into me. Well, that's your roots, right? I mean, teenage parents. Oh, sure. It's the, it's the trauma talking there. But yeah. I at least can see that because of all the therapy that I've been through. And, and I'm very grateful for it now. I used to not be. But my wife is that voice who's like, you're not, listen, you're not the underdog. You can stand for the underdog, but you have to stop thinking the whole world's against you and that you, you're not successful or it's all going to fail because that's where I go immediately. You do. For sure. Every time. And la even last night, my wife was like, hey, look, we're just going to start saying positive things. And I, this is a story I've never told. Well, because it's last night. And I usually don't talk about things that may not happen. But um, my agent hit me up last night. And he was like, there's a show. And it's on one of the big streaming services. And they think you'd be good for it. We think you'd be great for it. But that usually doesn't work out. It, even to get to that stage, it's one out of 50 and so I told my wife, I said, hey, this show, I think it's a good idea. I'd love to get it, but we know how this happens. I won't get it. And she's like, well, why? Well, what does it help you to do that? So I go through that a lot where I just feel like things aren't. And I'm like, oh, it never works out for me. But she shakes me and goes, uh, you're rich now. And I'm like, yeah, but that could go away tomorrow. She's like, no, you're really responsible with your money because you used to be poor. So I'm very lucky that she exists for that reason, but I don't really have that one skill where I go, well, if I got fired tomorrow from all these jobs, I have this skill that could get me back there. And that weighs on me all the time. What about silence? Are you good in silence? Great. I love awkwardness. You do? Oh, yeah. I eat that for breakfast. I love it. It's my favorite thing because it's not really that awkward to me. I love situations. So happy situations. Don't love sad, but sometimes for the message, it's needed. Yeah. Awkward's awesome. I can sit in it. That puts you in like a party of one. How many? I can oh. wash myself with it, eat it. <laughs> yeah, I just don't mind it. I don't mind it at all because it, you know, it too shall pass. And does it level the playing field if it's awkward? Because I think anytime people have come, I mean, it's all relative, right? The challenges we go through. Yeah. But. It, if you're comfortable in an awkward state with, let's say with me or whoever's you're sitting with, it kind of levels the playing field a little bit, doesn't it? Now we, we it is, share something. Yeah, it doesn't uh, put me into the negatives. You know, I, I, I'm rarely thrown off by an awkward situation and I can kind of stay. And also in my interview styles, 
I don't mind it getting awkward to the point of, let's say I have somebody in and they're not really giving me a lot with their answers. Purposefully or not purposefully, they're not being very generous. Even if we're live, I'll just be quiet because people will want to fill that space. They will. And my show knows I do this and it's awkward for them <laughs> because I, I'll insert someone who this hasn't happened to and who's a dear friend of mine because he won't care if I tell him in a story. But uh, Brett Eldridge, one of our best friends, country singer here in town. This didn't happen with him, but I'll use him for the sake of the story. I'm like, hey, Brett, how's it going today? Um, you know, I heard that you ate a whole uh, live chicken yesterday. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's not true. Well, I'll just sit. And he'll feel awkward because he's in my house, my studio. So he has to participate. And then all of a sudden he's got to feel air because he doesn't want to feel awkward. It's kind of the battle of who wants to, f who can feel the most awkward. And I will win that every time because I do not care. So take me back. So, so Bobby Esther. So when you were Estel, Estel, I'm sorry. I wish it was when Esther. You, know, when you when you were when you were a kid and you were growing up, and and I know it's public knowledge, but I, I want to be sensitive and respect. Don't be sensitive. You don't have to be sensitive at all. But your but your dad left when you were young. Yeah, right? five, five five six something like that, right? So raised by your mom and, and grandmother. Mm -hmm. um, when did I think kids can sometimes sadly take ownership of the things that are outside of their their sort of realm of control, like a parent leaving. Um, when did you realize sort of what was going on and how did that impact you even just as a young boy? Not having a dad was weird and I wasn't sad about it at first because I didn't understand what I didn't have by not having a dad. I think I got sad about it when I got 12, 13, 14 years old. You did? Yeah, I think that's when I started to be resentful and even understand what resentment meant. Uh, five and six and he's gone. It's just like, well, he wasn't around that much anyway. He'll probably come back, but then leave again. It was just everything understood from a five or six year old. So I think it's pretty normal then. I don't remember going, well, I really got to, you know, go to work at the salt mines at six, you know, to help. But we also were very poor anyway. And it, we didn't, even, I didn't even know we were poor, right? Yeah, what, tell me, describe what poor was for you. Like, oh, I didn't even know. I didn't know I was poor till I got older. You know, I just thought it was normal. So... I mean, we never had, I say never. There were a lot of times, even going to school, where I, I wouldn't have lunch to eat. And, it, the, you know, there was a time, too, where I was too embarrassed to tell them that I needed free lunch because it was just humiliating. People feeling sorry for you. Not even the poor part of it. The poor part I could deal with. Other kids were poor where I come from. It's not like I lived in... You were from a small town. Yeah, it's not like I lived in Beverly Hills and I was the one poor kid. We it was there were two schools, I believe, right? I mean, it's we small. Had, we had one school with two buildings for K through twelve. So it's a reach to say two schools. Yeah. yeah, and so I never felt like woe is me. I'm poor, but it was I had a lot of poor people here. I just want people to feel sorry for me. I can't have that. I don't. People, I don't want anybody to feel sorry for me. I don't need their sympathy. So I just wouldn't say anything about it. So is it lazy to attribute the underdog status and that sort of approach in life to your growing up in a small town? Oh, sure. That's all of it. Yeah. It the underdog of not having any resources, you know, it wasn't, we didn't have three meals. We didn't have clothes. You know, if we did, we went to yard sales. But I think I was very angry about that until five or six years ago. And now I just appreciate it because the greatest thing that anyone can have is empathy, right? And that is understanding a situation that people are going through. And so where I used to look at it as, ah, that sucks, that sucks for me, makes me sad. It still can make me sad if I hear somebody else that went through that similar or is still going through that. 
but I'm just very grateful for it because I understand it. And I think that's allowed me to do things I never would have even cared or understood to do uh, with philanthropy or things that I still want to do even politically. And had I had that, I wouldn't be here even with you. So I, I know that now. So as I, me telling the version of my story has changed over the years because I used to be like, yeah, it sucks, it's hard. Now it's like, yeah, it happened, but man, I'm pretty pumped that it happened and I'm here now because look what I can do. So it's a bit of honoring yourself in the path that you were on? I don't know if it's honoring me as much as it's letting other people know that whatever you're going through that sucks, you'll gain a lot from it once you get out of it and you'll be able to do what you want with it. And I think that's been the real strength for me. And so doing and sort of jumping in, I love the beginning of your story where, I mean, you, you want to be on radio, right? You sort of get dumped in at an early age on air. Yeah. I, you know, when I was five, my grandma raised me for a lot of my life. And it even was my mom for a while. As in she adopted me when my mom left as well. And so my grandma had kept this thing when I was in kindergarten. Like, what do you want to be when you grow up? But I wanted to be on the radio, on TV, and a stand-up comedian. And I just remember, I don't know, being sixth, seventh, eighth grade, being confused at how people didn't know exactly what they wanted to do. Because I always knew. And I think now, I think I wanted those positions because I wanted to be good at it and get love, right? I felt like that was a way for me to get love. I'm funny. People laugh at me. People laugh with me. They love me. That was a way for me to get that. So all those jobs, as I look back, that was that. That was me going, I just want to be noticed. I just want positive attention. But... Yeah, it was always confusing that people didn't know what they wanted to do. And so I knew so much. I was 14, 15. I was calling radio stations. I was going by radio stations. And yeah, I was a teenager. And I went and I applied for this job at KLAZ in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And they didn't have an on-air spot. But they had a spot where I was going to clean the building. And I would take it. Anything to get in. Anything. Yeah. Oh, yeah, anything. I did some dirty stuff. God, I'm just kidding. I did. Um, <laughs> so I... Uh, took the job and like two days later they fired somebody because they were stealing some of the station equipment for the mobile DJ service. And so they were like, you got to go on the air. And you know, you're Bobby Bones or Bobby Z. And away I went. And I was, it was awful. It was awesome, but it was awful. And that was the beginning of, you know, where we are now. Where'd the confidence come from? I can't fathom. It wasn't confidence. I'm not confident now. So confidence, it is not. It is it's mostly uh, if I don't do it, it's never going to get done. And if I have these goals or I have these dreams to, one, get out of this situation or two, get to a situation that I really want, I got to go do it. I got to do it now or I'm going to do it in a year. And it's going to suck either way. So let's just do it now and get that part over with. I very much Lucky Charms my life, which is – you ever had Lucky Charms? Oh, cereal? Excellent, right? And so well, how I eat my Lucky Charms is – I eat all the oats first, and then I'm there with some really tasty milk and marshmallows. Now, I deserve that tasty milk and marshmallows because I just worked through all the freaking oats. So it's a bit like that. It's like, all right, I got to get at this, and it's I'm going to do the oats because I want the marshmallows. So you're working like the underdog in just about every area of your life. Still do. Yeah. This is why my wife is like, yo, bro. So tell me about, tell me about I mean, this may sound kind of ridiculous based on what you just said, but tell me about your relationship to success, can you celebrate success, or is that one of the, is that almost kryptonite? Like, because I find some people that reach a level of success, it's like, man, if I flip 
and I celebrate sort of what I've achieved, I might lose the edge. I felt that way about therapy. You did? I was scared. I didn't know much about therapy. And that's a great point because I think any sort of creator that creates and has a version of success, they don't want to change the fundamental reasons that they had that success. And so I was in my 20s, 25, 26, and therapy was offered in my insurance. And I was like, therapy? That's what weirdos do. That's like people in LA, Hollywood TV. They go to shrinks, therapy. And, but it was like $20 copay. And I thought, I honestly got thought, I'm going to go to this. It's going to be such good content. I'm bringing on the show. I was just doing it for bits. You were doing it for bits. Because I thought, why would I need a, a shrink? And so I go and it was like, oh my God, I love it. I'm going and it's so week. hard, but I, yeah. yeah. And so I found like kind of a, a safe, unbiased space. And so I started to get really worried because I'm in therapy to, you don't fix anything, but at least for me, but I have acquired tools to somewhat slow the bad stuff down and I can acknowledge what's happening. And I started to go, oh no, I am not blindly running into my traumas and making great content. Now I'm evaluating, am I not going to be as good? Oh my God. So that was a real big concern with therapy. Uh, success is, is, is tough because I, I don't know what that means because I don't think I would ever be at a place and just go, I did it because my goals have really been, I mean, they're not fluid and all have the same goals really that I used to have and I'm not there and everything I do builds to those goals. So I don't feel like it's that successful. And that's kind of the, conversation, career conversation that my wife and I have a lot. This episode is brought to you by The Happily Company. Their monthly date night subscription box, date box, has been used by thousands of couples to keep their relationships healthy and interesting month after month. Use code HEADROOM50 for 50% off your first date box. So then how do you evaluate opportunities? Because as we sort of transition our conversation, I think of you and I say to myself, I was saying this to myself just in, in reviewing stuff even last night at home going, all right, so he's obviously in entertainment. He's an entrepreneur in the media. I could I could claim that you're a social impact entrepreneur with all that you've done with St. Jude uh, and others. Um, but it begs the question, how do you then evaluate sort of the things that you want to do so that you're not the cheesecake factory menu. Um, you can still have impact in a way that I guess keeps you in the zone that you feel comfortable in. It doesn't sort of take you out of, your, of who you are. Um, but that requires you to put some, I would imagine, parameters on what success might look like I with think, Raging Idiots. I think you bring up some great points. I think the one thing that I've been able to do successfully is stay on brand with all of my projects. You have? Yeah. Like it's all a version of, I say stay on brand, but it's like stay who I just am. Some of my mm-hmm. friends who are in this business, either podcast or radio, they're like, why don't you just, you could just make up some really good stories and be... The reason I don't lie is not because I think lying is bad. because I can't remember the lies. I'm just in so many places. I would just get caught. I would love to make up really funny stories about what's happened to me. Some good bits. Right? Yeah, it'd be awesome. But I know that uh, I get caught immediately because I just wouldn't remember. And so it's all on brand because I can't remember 
the things that aren't. Okay, so then tell me, what, what does brand mean to you? Things I like, uh, the way I talk, uh, where I'm from. I don't curse, so I don't curse in anything. I mean, I, I saw cursing five or six years ago, the, period. So I could write clean so I wouldn't crutch that. And I credit Deion Sanders to that because him and I did a pilot for ABC together, a, a talk show. And he was like, I ain't cursed in 20 years. I was like, why? Because it's kind of fun. Because <laughs> I was. I was like, it's awesome. I'm not going to lie, Bobby. It is a little fun. Yeah. <laughs> And he said, you know, it's just a, a disciplined muscle that I wanted to incorporate to show that I could do it. It wasn't bigger and better than me. He said, it could be anything. It could be drinking. It could be not cursing. It could, And I would find myself in the early days of me writing stand-up, it was just easier to write the F word or do a balls joke. I mean, really, it was just, that's funny. And you can always get some medium laughs doing that. But I thought, I don't want to do that. I don't want to feel like... I have an escape route because I won't work as hard. And so I just stopped. And one day I want to go back. It feels like it's a destiny. It's like a vacation I went on five years ago. I can't wait to go back to the Virgin Islands. Yeah. Um, But it's been great for me because, and and my brand is clean. So if I'm doing comedy, if I'm writing a kid's book, if I'm doing, it's clean because that's, that's who I am. Uh, You know, I come from the rural South. Um, most of my stuff comes from the voice of a person who comes from the rural South. Even some of my views that aren't considered of those that would come from the rural South, like guns, for example. You know, I've been very outspoken about my views on guns and responsible gun owning. And I lead it by saying things like, before I say this, I'd like to let you guys know that I was 11, maybe 10 with a 410. Then a 20 gauge. Then I graduated a 12 gauge. From then I had a 30 out six. We hunted to eat. And so if I don't give that background, again, rural guy from the South, talking to other people that are growing up in rural areas in the South or Southeast or California. And if I don't say that before I say the rest of what I have to say, they're just going to go, well, this is some guy that doesn't understand what we're going through, who has no understanding of what... So I'm just a celebrity. Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you. For, I'm not, I don't really feel like I'm a celebrity, but thank you for that compliment. So, and then I say, there are some people that just shouldn't have guns. There literally are some people, and it shouldn't be so easy to get them. Yeah. And then I compare it to, based on situations in my life. You know, I did a show called Breaking Bobby Bones on Nat Geo, and in that show, I had to go and get a CDL, which is a license to drive an 18-wheeler. I had to take a test. I do the, it was, it was, it was hard, but... For me to go to from car to 18-wheeler, I had to prove I was competent enough to go to 18-wheeler. And I say there's no reason people should be able to buy these high-powered A, B, C, D, E, F, G guns if they can't prove that they – but if you can, you can take your gun CDL. Great. Then you deserve to have it because I do think that we should have guns. I have guns. But I don't think – but that being said, all of that, and this is not a conversation about that as much as it is, everything I do comes from – where I come from, and that is rural and in the South. And a lot of people that I grew up with don't subscribe to my exact opinion on it, but they at least they can understand where I'm coming from because I've reminded them, I'm from where you're from, and here's my statement and how I feel about it based on where I come from. I'm glad you brought that up because it speaks to me about like platform and opportunity. So even, the, I'm a little bit older than you, and you know the word entrepreneur did not exist when I was growing up. You're, maybe you had a parent that had a shingle out based sure. on insurance, wherever it was. 
and then you had entrepreneurs coming up, and then, but, and then it was like, well, but you can't have an opinion. We can't have a platform. Well, now that's blown out of the water. Uh, no pun intended based on what you're saying. But it's like you can be a celebrity. You can have a platform. You can have a brand. And they can all sort of be in sync together. And I find that there are those who have that opportunity to feel a great sense of responsibility. And I would imagine that that is something that resonates with you in all that you do to raise, I think it's what, over $22 million or something that you yeah, for St. Jude's, Jude's, right? Yeah. And I mean, talk about legacy building. I mean, that's incredible. That, that, this is not just a sort of small donation or a small amount of time that's being committed to this. This is sure. incredible amounts of time and resource and energy. Um, talk a little bit about that from an entrepreneurial standpoint, because there are so many, especially young people now, Bobby, they think of brain in a very different way. You know, I've got a soon-to-be 11-year-old. They're talking about YouTube and all these social channels. They're worried about the way in which they look and communicate. We didn't talk like that. We're in our 40s. Um, what kind of sense of responsibility do you feel that you have, potentially, in those eyeballs looking at you going, wow, if he can do this, if he can expand what he does for work in a way to make positive impact? Because I don't think an entrepreneur is just sort of in a vacuum. How do you look at that, and how do you think about the responsibility of other people looking to glean from your experience. I think you made a great point earlier that kind of leads and lends itself to this and that if I do 84 different things, none of it is actually heard as far as like messages. Like let's say I had 84 charities that I was involved in and I was like, well, today it's going to be, we're going to get coats for cats. This is my new, but tomorrow, you know, we're going to do lungs for lemmings and everything has to be uh, alliteration, obviously. But... With St. Jude and with animals, I kind of just dialed in and like, these are the ones I'm going to do that I'm going to focus on because in the NFL, if you have two quarterbacks, you have no quarterbacks. I mean, you don't have one, one strong one. And so I know that if I keep my message consistent and for me, it's sick kids and animals because I was a sick kid and I have animals. It's very selfish because I've picked things that like motivate, inspire things that I've been through. Like, that's why I've, but I understand, I have empathy, right? Like, I understand both of them. So let me lend my experiences to try to help. I was in the hospital a lot when I was a kid. I had my spleen removed, you know, ruptured it. It was terrible. And I wouldn't have been able to get through, or financially, I wouldn't have been able to have the care that I had without people stepping in, my church, people from the neighborhood. So that's where the St. Jude bond comes from not just that they work with kids and cancer because everybody believes in that but it's that nobody goes there and pays it doesn't matter if they're rich or poor nobody goes there and has to pay for travel or house or food or like that's what hits me like at my core because i couldn't afford that stuff and they're actually eliminating the thought of it if you're rich or poor and so because of that I was drawn to it. Not the kids and cancer. That's a major part of it. But the kids and the cancer. And then they're making sure the kids with the cancer and the families, they don't have to worry about a bill. Or worry they're going to get worse treatment than somebody else that can pay more money. So authenticity is important to you. I mean, it has to be because it's all I have because it's consistent. I, I get the sense from you that you're willing to dive in whole hog if you feel a connection and you feel that you can authentically represent what that is because you've had the experience you know what it's like to go without a meal or you know what it's like to sit there and say well that's great you have this service but we can't get there we don't have transportation absolutely um you know at my high school the i, I played football um i played baseball 
I didn't play basketball. And the reason I didn't play basketball was because everybody in the basketball team had to buy a specific shoe. And the shoes were $60. And I wanted to play basketball, but I knew we didn't have $60. And I wasn't going to ask for $60. And so I never played basketball. And it, I was just, and I always act like I didn't want to play, but I was super sad about it because I really wanted to play basketball. And what I've been able to do is make sure that those kids don't have to worry about that. So I'll just buy the whole team shoes. Not to be... Again, I'm just kind of giving back to myself. When I say it's selfish, I'm just giving back to me. I watch you on a time machine. Of brand. You're giving back because you give a brand. Oh, no, it's not because of brand because I got so much. I, there's you a lot that I do that people don't even know place. about. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yes, but also I, I've had to come to terms too with it's okay sometimes that people get upset with me because I say, hey, I'm doing this and hopefully you will do this. And people will say, well, why do you always talk about it? Well, for one, I don't always talk about everything I do. And two, I have learned that when I do talk about something, if it's my personal life, if it's my struggle growing up, if it's charity I'm involved with, it always gets more eyeballs and earballs on it. And it does help. And so I have to give up because people are rough sometimes on me for that. But I have to go, you know what, I'll just sit through this little second of people beating me up for the fact that something's going to be affected by it. So, but it's been great. And I've been able to actually change a lot of things for folks because I had things change for me. My high school football coach, I didn't have a dad. He was a massive influence. He didn't. He spent so much time volunteering, not just a high school football coach, but being a father figure in a lot of ways, a lot of discipline. My best friend's dad, my youth director at church. Like I don't just give because I think it's fun or make me look good. I give because I had so much given to me and I wouldn't be here without certain people. You're a lot of mentoring. Yeah, I'd have guilt. I wouldn't be here without people stepping in for me. So, oh, crap, man, I need to make sure that I give that back times two or three or ten. Let's let's dive into that briefly. I'll share my experience of you on American Idol as the, as the mentor, right? The thing I liked about you in that was that I always got the sense that you weren't coming in saying, like, I know what to do. I'm Bobby Bones. This is what I know what to do. Like, there was this transparency, even through the screen, that you had been in their spot. Is that what was coming out, that mentoring the high school football coach, like these sorts of things? I mean, it was really this like emotional, um, it's like bumper bowling or something like that. I'm here for you. It's a good example. Yeah, the bumper bowling. Um, yeah. Yes. I don't Creatively, I can never claim to know anything because there's nothing to know concrete creatively, ever. Never has been, never will be. Um, so there's that aspect of it. But there's also... <clears throat> A lot of those, we'll call them kids and young adults, that their first time ever to Hollywood or to New York is that show. I never went to L.A. or New York until work was like, you got to go. And I'm wide-eyed. And I'm like, well, this is crazy. I cannot. So, you so I knew what they were going through. And I would have loved for somebody to be like, hey, I'm here for <laughs> you. Here, Bobby. Let's yes. talk about this. Yeah. Um, and on top of that, you know, except for the first season, because I was never hired to be full-time on that show. I was hired to do one episode. Really? One episode, and they pay me like two thousand dollars, and it cost me like five <laughs> from airfare and Time. hotels, oh, and, yeah, yeah. and I didn't tell them I didn't live there. They don't care. I just wanted an opportunity to show what I was worth. So the first couple episodes, I lost money doing that show. I did one. They said, "Come back and do one more." Boom, did another one. They said, "Well, do another." So I, I did four or five episodes that first season, like one at a time. When I got to the, the finale. I was like, guys, I told my agent, I said, I'm losing money. 
like I've done these episodes and I'm down like $9,000 and that's okay. But at some point I just want to break even. Right. And so I, I went from making whatever the minimal is of 2000 bucks, like the, uh, the, the union minimum. And they paid me $50,000 for the last episode. And I was like, now we're talking. This is awesome. And so that was it. I thought no more. And they came back and they said, we'd love to hire you to be full time every episode. And I was like, because I can't do two thousand dollars an episode, you know. Yeah. I, I told my agent that, and they paid me over a million dollars the next season. It went from, I mean, I, I ended up making overall like twenty grand for five or six episodes, all in, after I paid my agents, yeah. which was great. But it was like five episodes, twenty is a lot of time and effort. Lost money for a long time. To once I proved and I could show them my value, they didn't go, okay, we'll do fifty grand an episode, which I'd have been like, this is awesome, let's do that. But they were like, we'll pay you. 1.2 million like dollars well, <laughs> what are we talking you're talking about 1.2 thousand right like 1200 and so that to me that's one of those moments though that i just was reminded if you just show up and you just prove your value eventually you'll get it if you really are valuable in in that situation so are you an entrepreneur do you fashion yourself as an entrepreneur well i wouldn't be here without it i mean i when i was 25 or so I just wanted to syndicate my show but I was in Austin Texas and nobody wanted to syndicate my show it was weird we didn't have great voices I hired all my friends that had never been in radio so what I did is I found what was at the time only used for remote broadcast within the city a Comrex box and I just the, the the very short version of the story I started buying these Comrex boxes and giving my show away for free and paying all the fees so I've built my own syndication empire through small towns syndicating myself with my own money. I was in the hole. I was in the hole doing my radio show for a couple of years. And I think the that that entrepreneur word is I had to invest a whole bunch of money in something that I believed in that most people either didn't believe in it or just didn't care. And it wasn't that, that everybody was like, you'll never make it. They're just like, ah, good luck. We'll see what happens. Nice guy, but Yeah, like you're you're interesting, but uh, but I just had a little bit of success. I got we went number one in Wichita, Kansas. With I'm spending all this money and all this technology, I've got an intern. I've now made an engineer. We both don't know what we're doing, and I won in Wichita, Kansas. And so we're in Austin. We're number one. We're in Wichita, Kansas, we're number one. Well, Albany, Georgia's like we need a show. We don't have a whole bunch of money. We could, let's go. Lubbock, Texas, and we started to build with these little. And I'm having to buy more Comrex boxes. We got a whole room. It's almost like smoke coming out of it. And so it ended up when I was still doing hip hop and pop. What's the irony is I was always told I was too country to do hip hop and pop. And then when I got to country, I was told I'm not country enough. Um, but I was able to take that, turn into like 35 stations. I had my own syndication network, some big cities into it. I had St. Louis. I had, and iHeart was like, we, we want we want this in this business. So they bought a big part of my network from me. I still own part of it, but they bought a big part of my network from me. And that to me was taking a risk, believing in myself and using the resources that I had, which weren't a lot. And I just kept pumping them into it because I believed into it. And that to me was the entrepreneurial spirit that I felt like got me to this point radio wise. What's your advice to young people? Uh, they're now planning. I mean, we've got a local school here in Nashville that has an entrepreneur center just for high school students. 
So we're, this is the gig economy. I mean, these kids are not coming up wanting to work in corporate America. They want to build their own thing outside of brand. What's the advice that you have? I mean, I think I have a pretty good sense or beat on you, but I'd love to hear what your thoughts are just on advice and what it takes. I mean, big, big, big picture is figure out what you want to do and then just go do it until you can't do it anymore, right? That's the cliche thing, but there's uh, most cliches exist for a reason because they're pretty true, most. Most cliches are pretty true, and that's why they're a cliche because they've been said so many times because of truth. The other thing is I think now especially is how are you a little – or how is what you're doing just slightly different than what's already being out there, what's already out there? It's not going to be – completely different. You're not going to change the world with a brand new invention, but how are you going to, and I talk to people about even starting podcasts, like how is this just slightly more niche than the general, I'm going to do interviews or I'm going to talk about music, the history of music. Like what is, how can you slightly alter it to where it's more in tune with who you are? Because it's easier to stay consistent if the consistency is you. Must hear like Ben, don't break. Well, you got to pivot constantly, and you just got to keep going because it ain't over until you stop. So, but it's what can you do that is slightly different than what's being done out there, and how much are you willing to go through to kind of get it? Because if it's good, it sucks to get it. It's hard to get it because if it was easy, everybody'd have it. But they don't. So let's wrap on this, Bobby. So we're we're here in Music City. So, you know, the odds are, I mean, of course, it's a growing city uh, exponentially every day sort of thing. But let's say you and I run into each other 30 years and you know, aren't you that random guy that came into my studio and interviewed me? And I said, you kind of catch me up, right? I've seen what's publicly there available. But like, will you, if we run into each other, will you be comfortable giving a similar answer as you did today about your level of comfort in your own success? Will you be okay if it's at the same state or will you be able to kind of exhale and say, you know what, I've, I've come to take ownership of my name and that I do have talent in all these different areas that my wife, Caitlin, has been telling me that I've had all these years, right? Like, will you be okay to be in the same spot? I hope so. I hope I'm healthier. No. I don't wear my unhealthiness as a badge. You don't? No, not at all. I, I think would. it's important to say though, right? Yeah. A lot of people, I think it becomes sort of trendy or it feels yeah. like they can own something. I, I, I'm trying to get healthier. Like I said, even the conversations with my wife, I may not act like it to her, but I, I, like I value that and I learn little things from it. You know, she grew up so the opposite of me. Parents that are together, loving family. They do Christmas they do Thanksgiving. And so she comes from a place with just different perspective, a, a, a place that I was always jealous of and resentful of because I didn't have it. Not because I just didn't like it because I didn't have it, didn't know it. So, but I think I've, I've grown healthier in the last four or five years. And as unhealthy as I sound right now, you should have heard me then. Like I at least can acknowledge it and have the understanding now when I start to go into dark places. See, I hear you as actually incredibly healthy and uh, refreshing because the healthier so for sure. many are concerned about whatever that public image is and that you can't have any sort of frailty at all or splintering of your past because yeah. that means that you aren't as exciting, sexy, successful. No one's ever said I'm sexy, but um, I'll take it. <laughs> um, I'm a celebrity. I'm a sexy celebrity. I like that. <laughs> We're changing I learned... your brand as we speak, Bobby. 
and again, you bring up something that, that, that has fascinated me in that when I wrote my first book, again, it was a failure in that I wanted to write a kid's book and everybody kept saying no. And I went to all these places to pitch a kid's book and they're like, you're not famous enough. You're not, there's oversaturation of the market. When I went to HarperCollins, they were like, hey, you have a really interesting story. We were just Wikipediaing you because we think this kid's book idea is terrible. Um, but we're Wikipediaing you. Will you talk about like your life and would you ever write on that? And I was like, I guess. So I went back the next day. I was supposed to stay in New York. I was supposed to leave New York, but I stayed today. And I started telling them about how I grew up and, and more than how I grew up, how I feel about how I grew up and how I think that affects me. And so they said, hey, why don't you write that as a book? And I'm like, man, I don't know. I already talk about the stuff. I'm not scared to share the stuff, but who's going to spend money? Like to me, that was what was so scary. You don't want to listen to our show. You can change it. You do want to listen to my show. It doesn't cost you anything. Nobody loses. But I thought, if I write a book and you pay me to do this book. So the deal I made with them was I'll write the first half of the book, which wasn't really the first half, but they wanted 60,000 words when it was done. And so I said, I'll write you 30,000 words. I don't want any advance no agreement, but if you like it, I'll take the money and we'll do a book. Knowing they probably wouldn't like it. And so I just wrote essays. Didn't know how to write a book, but that's okay. Nobody knows how to do anything until they know how to do it. So I just wrote essays after essay after essay on my thoughts on things, on my opinions on things, on my life, on the situations that have happened to me. And they were like, we'll take it. So I, I took the $50,000 check and I said, okay, I'm going to finish it. It was a nightmare. Because once I put the check in the bank, all that pressure, I don't mind pressure, but it was pressure that I was putting on myself because I was scared that nobody would buy it and that I was going to look like a real idiot. So I thought, well, if I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail being as absolutely me as possible because it's worse than failing is failing going, dang, I wish I'd just been a little more honest about it. So finished it, sent it in, was really nervous scared even and it sold like crazy Bestseller. couldn't but four weeks couldn't i literally couldn't believe it couldn't believe it and so what i did in that book though and what gets to your point is i was extremely vulnerable about a, a lot of things that i was borderline embarrassed of and i did not want people to feel sorry for me i was a charity case i felt my whole life I didn't like being a charity case. That's why I don't want feel sorry for me in the free lunch line. It's why I don't want people to feel sorry for me in the book. But what I learned was when I talked about things like my mom and her struggles, my struggles, just struggle in general, the things that I felt that I would be the most embarrassed about were the things that related to people the most. And I would tour and I'm doing these theaters and doing stand-up. And it wasn't like a funny bit from the show people would come up and want to talk about. They'd want to talk about like the most vulnerable parts of the book and not that they were driving by a car wreck, but it's like they were in the car wreck with me. And so it was then, and I'd known it on radio, but I'm on radio by myself, just me and my friends. Um, it was then where I was like, man, there really is something super strong about being extremely vulnerable. And I haven't mastered it. And sometimes I'm not good at it. Sometimes I'm great at it. But I'm not afraid of it. And I still don't want to be a charity case. 
but I don't see weakness as being weak. I don't see asking for help as being weak. I see it as extremely strong because other people sometimes need to see a leader do that. And that's what I, I feel like I'm a leader, even in ways in ways that I'm not good. So I hope when I see you in 30 years that I'm like, bro, I retired the day after we had our first interview. <laughs> I moved on an island and life is good. Like that would be the ultimate goal. Like I would love that. But that probably won't be the case. And I hope to say, you know, I'm good. I, I, I've been growing and probably, you know, we have this new, we can freeze our brains and live forever. I'm super excited about that. President Elon, nice job. You know, it's, a lot of stuff we'll probably go through. But uh, I, I don't want to always feel as unhealthy as I do now, but I'm much healthier than I was yesterday. Well, you're incredibly generous. You talked earlier about guests and, and generosity. You've been incredibly transparent and generous uh, with me during this conversation. And regardless of the last name of the brand and all the things that you do have done and will do, um, it's been a pleasure to spend time with the Bobby that's sitting in front of me. Thanks. Thank you. We've been going back and forth through character Bobby Bones, Bobby Estill. We've been going, we're bouncing back and <laughs> forth a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's Bobby Bones. Let's talk like this on Bobby Bones. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thanks for taking the plunge into Headroom, where we uncover the why behind the what and who impacting our lives. Headroom is a production of Rainlight and co-produced by our friends at Old Soul. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and this is Headroom.